into God's Word together. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and 21 today. We're going to be looking at the law. And uh, last week we looked at the rest of the Ten Commandments. This week we're getting into what's called uh, the Book of the Covenant. If you remember a few weeks ago as we started into this, I talked about how the the laws in Exodus are arranged like an ancient treaty between a great king and a subject people. And how there's a prologue and, and witnesses called. And then there are copies of the law made and all of the stipulations that are laid out for enjoying and participating in and receiving the blessings of the covenant. And then there's a covenant sealing ceremony. Well, uh, Chapter 20, 21, 22, 23 uh, give all of the stipulations of the covenant. And then chapter 24 is the sealing of the covenant in the ceremony of, of the covenant confirmed between God and his people. And, and you have all these laws. And a lot of times um, it's either in the genealogies or the historical books, or the law, that people's Bible reading plan, you know, they're through the Bible in a year, goes to die. Uh, but, but I want to explain to you some things about the law that might help you to find it exciting and even enjoyable, and that we might learn from it and grow in it as we understand it better. Because uh, the law was not put in this book, that it might bore us all to death, but that it might illuminate God's character and that it might restrain sin and that it might also point out the need for a Savior. Those are basically what the law is meant to do. It's meant to show us who God is and what He's like, and it's meant to restrain sin and evil among God's people as they're told, do not do this. Instead, do this. It's meant to limit the amount of evil that goes on among God's people. And also, because no one is able to keep it perfectly, it's meant to point them to the Savior, that they might go, you know what, I've got all these laws. In fact, if you, if you total up all the laws in the, whole, um, in the whole Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, what you find out is there are about 613 laws altogether. And it's impossible to keep them all in all of their fullness. And that is meant, as you read them and understand them, to point out to you, you know what, I really am a sinner, I really do have a need of a new heart, and I really do need a sacrifice before God to restore my relationship with Him, that I can be saved from all of the penalty of the sin that I've committed. And, and, the, and so the law is meant to do that, to point out our sin and to... Sh- and to show us that we need salvation. And then God provided as part of the law a a way of sacrifice that was meant to point to and identify Jesus Christ as Messiah when he came so that they would see him and go, this is the sacrifice we've been waiting for. This is it. And, And so the law is meant to, like I say, to show us who God is, to restrain sin, and to point to Jesus and to identify his character so that people would know who he is. But it's also, and this is a point I want to make today because of the type of laws we're talking about, 
it's also meant not just to be private morality, but that God has a code of conduct that is supposed to produce a certain kind of community life as well. Because, you know, as Americans, you know, we are, we are the people who fought for individual liberty. And that, you know, each, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights. And that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And we believe that, and we believe that more than we believe our Bible sometimes. That, that my existence on this planet is all about me and my needs. And then when we come to faith in Christ, a lot of us, what we think is this, that somehow that my, that, that my relationship with God is just that, that it's my relationship with God. And that I come to Christ as an individual, and that, that me and Jesus is the most important part of it. And what we don't realize is that you and Jesus are an important part of the people of God. That's true. But that's not all that there is. That there's also a community, a covenant community, into which you have been called as a member. And you have responsibilities within that covenant community. Amen? So we have responsibilities to share the gospel, responsibilities to to use our spiritual gifts, responsibilities to love and serve one another and interact with each other, right? God has the same identical priorities for his people Israel, that they are not just individuals out there who are trying to be ethical, but they are part of a community and that community life matters and that when he says love your neighbor as yourself, that that works itself out in community as well. It's hard to love your neighbor if you're not connected to any neighbors. Amen? And so these laws that are given have to do with life in the community and life before the face of God as they're connected to each other. How do you behave? How do you conduct yourself? How do you, what does love each other look like in practical ways? And these are an expansion, therefore, of the rest of the Ten Commandments. So you've got the Ten Commandments that give kind of the, the headlines, and then below that, laws that expand on those and fill those out and explain what is meant by all of those laws. So I want to open your Bible here, if you haven't already, to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at the first set has to do with worshiping God properly. And that is... Uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 22 to 26. And this is what God's word says. The Lord said to Moses, you shall, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to remember it, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now, you might go, well, gosh, you know, God gave all these laws 
And the first ones have to do with your relationship with him. And, and now he's repeating some of the same things that he had already told us in the Ten Commandments. What's that about? Well, here's what God is saying. Look, I know that even though I've just given you the law, and even though you've said, and they did, everything God has said, we are going to do. Okay? Just like when I do a wedding for people, and I love to do weddings, by the way. They're one of the favorite things that I do as a pastor is weddings. But these two people stand before God, and they make vows to each other. I will love you, and I will honor you always, and I will cherish you forever. And I sit there, and part of me, and the little back lizard part of my brain goes, oh, yeah, will you really? (laughs) Okay, you will learn to do that. If you're going to have a successful marriage, you better learn how to do that. To treat her and him with honor and respect and dignity and love and to cherish one another. But it's a process. Amen? As I've said before, you know, we had our first marital fight in the parking lot leaving the church. (laughs) Okay. Um, It was not our finest moment and certainly not mine. All right. But you learn to do this because you are not a perfect person and you do not become perfect people as you get married. And as people were in covenant with God, they weren't going to be perfect either. And God said, you know what? You're going to need to be sacrifice and restore relationship with me. And so let me tell you how to do that. First of all, remember what I said, no idols. And I don't need a little, you know, God, like, next to my altar, you know, to kind of, you know, represent some little consort or some other thing that, you know, you think, you know, maybe God is lonely and needs a friend, uh, whatever. And you do see that uh, in, in other religions. Uh, you know, Karen and I went to a, a Hare Krishna temple at one point as part of a seminary assignment, and they've got the little statue of the God, you know, they've got him a little, they dress him up in new clothes every day. Which that's some, some kind of a god, right? You got to get him dressed. Not capable of getting his own clothes on. But anyway, uh, they've got a little statue of him, and then they've got a little girlfriend for him, like next door, right? <laughs> and that's what God is saying. You're not to make any images of silver to be with me, okay? I don't. I, I'm not lonely. I don't need anything else to be next to me, okay? We worship a triune God who exists in perfect relationship within Himself. Now, the Israelites didn't know all that. It wasn't completely clear to them in Exodus. That's what reality was. But God is not lonely. He does not need a little you know, assistant or a little girlfriend next to him. He says, don't do that. Don't make any gods to be with me. Don't make any gods that you think look like me. Don't do that. It's idolatry. Don't do that. He says, if you want to make me an altar, make me an altar out of dirt. Now, that's interesting because every other religious culture at this time makes these very elaborate altars, supposedly to glorify the God that they're worshiping, but in reality, they also serve to bring glory to the people who made them. And God says, make me an altar out of dirt. And if you're going to make one out of stone, don't use a tool on it. The rocks that I made will be sufficient. And it's interesting that God says, look, make it simple. 
so that you not draw attention to the guy who is the craftsman. Instead, you draw attention to the God that you worship. And part of this is meant to be a, a witness to all the other nations around them that our God is not anything like any of yours. And he says, don't go up to my altar on steps. And the reason for that is this. A lot of these pagan altars, in fact, you can see if you've, if you've seen um, uh, pictures of ancient Sumeria and so forth, where they have these step pyramids that go up and they have an altar. If you've been to Central America, you've seen basically identically the same thing, where you've got these step pyramids that lead up to an altar. Well, in... In ancient pagan religion near, uh, in, near the Israelites at this time, what they have going on is they have these fertility cults. And if you want to start yourself a new religion, you can get a lot of adherence for. A sex cult is a pretty good one, okay? Because that's what they were. And you had these sacred priestesses who were basically prostitutes that you would pay and then on the steps, you'd find yourself a location to go and worship, as it were. And so when God says, don't go up to my altar on steps, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it, that's what he's talking about. And when God says to Israel that you prostituted yourself or you played the harlot with other gods, part of that is metaphorical and spiritual, and part of that is literal, it is literally what people did to worship these pagan gods. Was they would go and offer a sacrifice and then hire a temple prostitute to be with in public. And it was obscene and gross. And God said, don't do that. That is evil. That is sin. Don't do it. Uh, later on, you'll see that to do that is a capital offense against God in the land of Israel, okay? Now, uh, the next thing that he gets into is laws about slaves. Um, I want to read that with you. Now, these are the rules you'll set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and the master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, and she shall let her, he shall let her be redeemed." He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, he, she shall go up for nothing with no payment of money. Now, when you read this, you go, what is that about? Is God condoning slavery? Uh, slavery has been a feature of virtually every society in the history of the world. It is still a feature of uh, the parts of the world in Asia and Africa and the Middle East. And a lot of people, when they come to a section like this, they look at God's word and they go, what is going on? Why didn't God simply command 
slavery to be abolished. And a lot of people with a background in American history go, wait a minute, you mean the, you mean the guys down in, down in the South were right in what they did? No, they were not right in what they did. And no, God is not condoning slavery as it has been widely practiced all over the world. Let me show you what's going on. Um, first of all, there's some features about what's called slavery here in Israel that are very different from slavery as it is usually practiced elsewhere in the world. First of all, it is voluntary. Voluntary. In other words, you had to, um, you had to voluntarily go into it. And usually the reason that you did was because you were in debt. You know, when Proverbs says the borrower is the, master, is the, is the lender's slave, to a certain degree in Israel, that was literal. If you could not pay your debts, this is not a day in which there are lots of banks that you can borrow money from. This is not a place where uh, you have a credit card. Oh, I'm short this month. Uh, I guess I'll you know, stretch it out to next month, whatever. You had to be very frugal with whatever money and resources you had because if you could not pay, remember within Israel you couldn't charge interest to your brother Israelite, but they did have to pay you back. And if you didn't pay back, then you could sell yourself into slavery to the person to whom you owed money. And then, and, but it was not a permanent thing. It was temporary. You could be someone's servant for six years only. Man or woman, six years. And you you were at the end of that six years to be released and not released empty-handed on top of that. You know, after the, at the end of the Civil War, they talked about 40 acres and a mule. You know, so in other words, you got to start your new life over. Well, in Deuteronomy, that's specifically commanded. It doesn't say 40 acres and a mule. What he does say is, you're to not send your slave away empty-handed. You are to send them out with the best of your vines, the best of your grain, the best of your um, the best of your uh, best goods of your house, and you're to send them away able, in a sense, to start life over again. That when you got in over your head, you you had to have a way to work off the debt, and this was the way that you could do that, and it enabled you if you were very very poor to. Um, to still eat and still have a place to live. And in some cases, your life was better as someone's slave than it was as an independent free person. Now, that seems very strange to us. You go, how could that be? But in a case where if if I don't do this, I might not have anything to eat for the next, oh, six months... Uh, most of us have never been that hungry. But there are circumstances where you, that might have some real lasting appeal. That it would be better to be a slave in a rich man's house than to be free and be destitute. And we don't have material poverty in this country like they have in a lot of places in the world and like they had in ancient Israel. But that was reality. Uh, in fact, the closest thing I know to it, I talked 
to a good friend of mine um, a number of years ago. He's a, he's a native uh, of Mozambique. Mozambique is the, I think still, fourth or fifth from the bottom poorest nation in the world. So, you know, uh, I think somewhere around Haiti-type level of poverty that they have always lived in. But they've been a Portuguese colony. They were a Portuguese colony from 1498 until 1976. And he, his life spans both ends of that. And I said, I said to him, uh, Isaias, I said, is it better that when you were a colony or is it better now? And he said, it's hard to say. I said, what do you mean hard to say? He said, well, when the Portuguese were here, everybody went to school and had plenty to eat. And now that we are free, very few people go to school, and lots of us don't have enough to eat. That's the kind of situation that you're talking about, when you became a slave voluntarily in someone else's house. And then your master um, was supposed to be kind to you and to take care of you and to teach you a trade and so that you would be able to start over as a productive citizen in life later. And he may have even given you a wife while you were there and had children. And uh, when you were released, you had the option of working a legit job and buying them out from your master, or you could remain his slave. And it, but you had to, if you were going to remain his slave, you had to go before God, which basically means go seek out the priest, and then... Um, and then you would have an earring put in your ear that marked you as a slave for the rest of your life. And like I say, in some circumstances, if you're desperately poor, that is a whole lot better than being on your own. And But God regulated this so that you would limit the amount of oppression and cruelty that was allowed to go on. Because even in the institution of slavery, which was allowed, there were limits set on it. That, that oppression would not continue generation to generation, but that these people would be provided for and set up for later life when they would be set free. Now, one of the other things that could happen is if you were a very poor family, you might not have enough money to properly marry your daughter off because there were costs involved in doing that. And you could then arrange a marriage as a father with a wealthy man who would take your daughter as a wife or as a wife for his son. And that's the situation that's addressed later. That, um, that he says, now look, this, this girl comes to you as, in a sense, a slave, but if, she is, if you marry her, she becomes your wife, and you have to treat her as a wife. So if later you want to divorce her, you can't go, well, you know what? I'm going to work this deal out to my financial advantage. I'm going to just sell her off to some wandering caravan here and get myself a new wife. No, you can't do that. You cannot do that. You have to maintain that relationship, even if you decide, you know what? I want to get another wife, Uh, which, by the way, in the universe of bad ideas, ranks high okay every place you see polygamy practiced in the in the old testament it becomes a family disaster okay god didn't prohibit it but it produces a family disaster and if you'd like to try it 
uh, it'll produce one for you too, okay? Um, it will, trust me. Um, guarantee you. But uh, the care you took of this woman in any respect, you had to provide her the same amount of food. The word literally reads meat, okay? Uh, you had to provide, you continued to provide her food. You had to continue to provide her clothes. And you still had to provide her um, physical contact uh, and, and affection and the ability to have children. Um, so you still had to be with her as your wife. He says, if you don't provide her with any of these, these things, she gets to divorce you and, and, be, and go back home to her parents and is set free from, from the relationship with you. But it's obviously a situation that has some opportunity for abuse, and so God set regulations around it. But again, this might be a situation where, hey, to be a rich man's wife was a whole lot better deal than being single at dad's house. And so um, this, is a, this is a way for a very poor person to rise in society and to be taken care of because she became the legitimate wife of someone with more money. Now, um, this is a difficult section of Scripture. I can't go into much more detail on it. We've got more to cover. But if you've got more questions on this, see me afterwards, because I'd love to talk to you. Uh, the next section here deals with capital offenses. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand... And I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him away from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now God, now let me point this out. God recognizes here in the law a difference between murder and what might be called manslaughter. Uh, that planned out killing, in other words, if you rolled up on somebody intending to, to whack them, that's murder, and you're executed for it. But if you're in a conflict with somebody, uh, or maybe you're in a self-defense situation or what have you, and the other person who attacked you dies, um, that is not murder. But what you had to do if someone wound up dead was you had to run to, uh, once the nation was actually in the, the land of Israel, to one of the cities of refuge and put yourself in front of the priest there. And uh, then they would have an investigation as to whether this is murder or whether this is manslaughter. If it's manslaughter, you had to stay in that place until the death of the high priest of the nation. And once he died, you were allowed to go home. But until then, you had to stay there. Uh, but if it was murder, uh, whether you claim, whether you were, you know, uh, making a claim for mercy by, and one of the things that people did was they went to the temple and grabbed hold of the horns of the altar, and you know, as a way to plead for mercy that I, this was a righteous kill. I, I was, it was okay. I'm legit under the law. If after the investigation happened, you were guilty of murder, they took you away from the altar and stoned you to death. They put you to death. They executed you. There was no death row where you 
hung out for 25 years, they put you to death. At the conclusion of the trial, you were executed. You can also be executed for, uh, the word says striking here is how my Bible translates it, but, but it's actually more aggressive than that. It's if you attack your father and your mother. Um, whether they died or didn't die is irrelevant. The fact that you attack them physically is a capital offense in Israel. Uh, the next one deals with what, uh, what's called uh, man-stealing, or what you and I might call being a, either a slave trader or a buyer of people who have been stolen. So in other words, slavery had to be voluntary, and this serves to, vo- to underline that. Okay? You could sell yourself into it. You could arrange a marriage for your daughter uh, to someone else with no money. But if someone shanghaied you into slavery, like 12 years a slave, or like happened with millions of Africans, Guess what? The guys who ran the ships, the guys who ran the chain gangs off the, off the coast, the guys who bought people in the slave markets were all guilty, according to the scriptures, of a capital offense. All guilty. So whether you were the stealer or the buyer of stolen people, you were put to death. It's a capital crime. So were those guys in the Old South righteous before God? No, they were not. Not in any respect. And every one of them deserved whatever happened to them. When their plantations got burned, they only got a lot less than they deserved. Whoever curses his father or mother should be put to death. This is the idea of instead of honoring your parents, you left them to starve when they got old. That's a capital crime. You're to take care of your mom and dad in their old age. Uh, The last section here deals with personal injuries. Um, There is legitimate personal injury law, and this is part of it. Okay, Um, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall... Let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. uh, And we're going to stop there for today, okay? Um, But these are the laws that deal with physical harm inflicted on someone else. And the Bible would teach us uh, that there's no excuse 
or resulting to just violence against somebody. There are, there are legitimate circumstances for using physical force, you know, self-defense in a just war, law enforcement. Uh, there are legitimate reasons why a person might uh, use physical force, but just interpersonally, no excuse for it. And so if you whack somebody and cause them injury, then there's restitution that has to be made, and that's legitimate. And so it deals, first of all, with guys that are fighting, and one of them injures the other guy bad enough where he's laid up. Uh, you, as the, as the injuring party, have to make sure that guy's completely healed, and you've got to pay him for all of his lost wages out of your pocket until such time as he is completely healed. So you had to pay both medical bills as well as workman's comp, if you will, um, because you, you hurt this guy, right? Um, if you killed your slave, then you were subject to death. That's what shall be avenged means. Then you were guilty of a capital crime. Now, that is totally unique in the ancient world. You may not know that. But if someone was a slave anywhere outside of Israel, you could do whatever you wanted to them. God says, no, you can't. You cannot physically abuse them, and you cannot, um, you cannot beat them to death. Not that you couldn't ever use corporal punishment. You could. But if you beat them to death, then you're guilty of a capital crime. If you seriously injure them, you have to set them free. Uh, what about this one? When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, the idea here is that is that the woman is pregnant and either a miscarriage or a stillbirth results. If uh, or just even a premature birth. Okay, so I guess there are three possibilities that. But in two of them, the woman loses the child. Whatever happens, he says, if there's harm, the guy who inflicted the injury pays, up to and including his life. So we're talking harm to the woman or also harm to the child. Because the scripture recognizes unborn babies as children, as people. That's also unique in the ancient world, but recognizes that growing baby as a person. And so if the baby dies, we put the guy to death. If the, if the child lives, but there's still harm, either to the woman or to the baby, then the guy is fined. Whatever the husband demands and the court allows, there's a fine levy, and he has to pay restitution um, all the way up to capital punishment. If there's a life taken, no matter how small the life is, there's a life taken, the person who's responsible for taking it is put to death. Now, that bears on a whole other area of law, doesn't it? Now, that child is a life. That child is a person. 
and to take their life is to commit murder. Especially to do it deliberately. Amen? Now, trying to read and understand these laws is going to be kind of hard slogging. You know, we're reading this and we're going, who is this blessing, right? But, but I want you to not miss the point that they're making. And all these laws are meant to clarify what, it's, what it means to live in a community as a nation. Now, we're not a nation uh, as the church of Jesus Christ. We're, we're a community and a congregation, but we're not a nation. These are national laws having to do with the establishment of a nation. But what you see is, as you add them all together, is that God's law is not just about personal morality. It's about creating a worshiping community that limits oppression and promotes justice. There were circumstances that were ripe for oppression, where somebody was in debt to you and couldn't pay back, where somebody was very poor and in desperate circumstances and had no options. And those were ripe for oppression, and God put limits and barriers around that to prevent that from being abused. Uh, There were situations where people could be abused in other ways, and God put limits on that. And on top of that, he made everybody stand at the same level before the law. Now, this is also unique. Do you see any exceptions here for if it's a rich guy who murders somebody, let him off? No. No. Everybody is subject to the same law. Everybody is subject to the same law. Everybody is granted equal dignity. Even the most vulnerable people in society are treated with the full weight and protection of the law. Even slaves, even the unborn, even women, they're all treated with equal dignity and equal protection of God's law. And God set limits and barriers to prevent those people specifically from being abused and mistreated and treated as if they were less or if they were nothing. And that is totally unique. You want to know one of the great contributions of the Bible to the world? That is it. That everybody from the least to the greatest, from the weakest to the most powerful, stands equal before God. And we're not under the Mosaic law, and the law is not binding on us because we're part of a new covenant. But we as a church have a corporate testimony too. You know, these things were meant to produce a witness to the surrounding nations. In fact, in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses says to the people, he says, God gave you all these laws so that you, people around you would look and they would see and they would see how you live your life and how you conduct yourselves with love for one another, even for the smallest and the weakest and the most vulnerable. And, you would, and they would see, surely this is a wise and understanding people. And what nation ever had a God so near like the God of Israel? And they would see all that and they would be drawn into the life of those people. And they go, I want to worship the God those people worship because they've obviously got a whole lot of things figured out that are right. And you know what? Even though we are not part of the Mosaic community, even though we're not under the law, we have a much better covenant, and we have a much better law, the law of love, that we are called to obey. And you know what the Bible says about us? It says that we have a corporate testimony also, and that 
Jesus said it this way, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. Right? And as we do that, as Chillicothe Bible Church, I'm convinced of this, that as we love each other well, that in the day-to-day stuff of life, that, it, that if how we treat one another shows care for each other and for the least and the less and the most vulnerable, that what will happen is that will be a testimony to people outside these walls. And they will say, I don't know what they're doing over there or what kind of God they worship or what they believe in, but I know I want to be part of that group of people because they care about one another and they treat one another with love and they obey what God's word says and how they should treat each other. And I want to be part of that. And if you want to know part of how we're going to get to 2018 people we're going to share the gospel with in the next four and a half years, that's part of how we're going to get there. Is by being the people of God who love each other and care for one another's needs and and who are not treating each other with violence, but instead with gentleness, who are not tearing each other apart, but who are building each other up, who are looking out for the the least and the most vulnerable among us and protecting each other and loving each other and being a family of God together. Amen? And then inviting other people and saying to them, hey, I know you're my neighbor and I know you don't know Jesus um, and I know you're probably not interested in church, but I think you should come anyway because what we're doing here is pretty awesome. (laughs) And I think if you get to be part of it, you'll think it's pretty awesome too. And you'll want to follow the same Jesus we follow. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father.